and good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, we're starting a, a series today working toward Easter, six weeks to Easter, right? Right? You're here today? Uh, we're going to focus on the heart of the gospel. And what we're asking you to do is we're going to set a goal for Easter Sunday of more than 600 people here. All right? Everybody said? Okay, a little weak there, but that's all right. We can do that. That's not that uh, big of a task for us to do. So we're just going to focus on, on that. But let me just say this to you as we do this. That's, last week, we were right around 400 here. So that's a, if, if we can focus on each one of you bringing someone to church on Sunday, we can blow that number away. But honestly, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not concerned about the number. Here's what, I, here's what to me is what I would like to, to say is important. It's really important for you to work as a team to try to achieve it. It's really important for all of you to say, what can I do to help build Mount Calvary Church? What's my part in helping God uh, build his church? And one of the things that I'm praying for most as we head into this time is just to see you as a church come together and say, let's all work together toward building this and let's work together toward seeing what we can see God do this coming Easter. Because all of you know that at the Easter season, people come out to church. Easter and Christmas are like the two main times when you can get people to come. So if you have family, invite family to come, invite friends to come. And let's see if we can't uh, see God do some really neat stuff. As we come down these six weeks and kind of focus on the gospel and then culminating with Easter, simple gospel uh, message that we want to give. I want to take time this morning and just begin this series and walk you through some things. I'll tell you, the Bible is a story. It's a story. And you need to look at it not so much as a textbook, not so much as a, a book of doctrine, but you need to look at it as a story because that's exactly what it is. But it's God's story. It's God's story. It's a book that's written by God to really unfold all that he is in the process of doing. It has uh, several aspects to it. It's the story of creation. It begins at creation. In the beginning, God. We don't have to try to prove the existence of God. He doesn't need for us to do that. He already exists. We just need to declare it to people. Because one of the things that happens is people don't necessarily believe in the existence of God. And I think you'll find this to be true, that what Satan does in trying to destroy the whole message of salvation is he doesn't begin with the message of salvation. Satan begins with the message of creation. Because it all begins at creation. And creation is the beginning of the story. It's the very first chapter of the Bible. And if Satan can take out creation, then what he can do, salvation will fall with it. Because salvation is built on the story of creation. But what God does in the first couple chapters of the Bible is he just unpacks the whole story of creation for us. It's really an important story especially in the day in which you live today, because it says things in that story like God made them male and female. That's really important today for people to understand that they were created in the 
image of God. The Bible is God's story about creation. The Bible is also the story about man's fall. And by man, I mean mankind, men and women. It tells a story in the first couple chapters of how Adam and Eve were responsible to be obedient. And they made a decision to disobey God. And it records the story of how man fell and how sin came about and how sin has now affected our world. But the Bible is the story of the fall of mankind. The Bible also contains the story of redemption. Because once man fell, he needed to be redeemed. Because what you'll find in your life is there's nothing you can do to crawl out of the mess that you are in as a fallen individual. And what you see in the world today is you see the invention of all types of different religious systems. And most of those systems of religions are just means whereby man tries to crawl out of the predicament that he's in. Most of it by good works. Reading this week a little bit about the six major religions, the Islam. Islam is basically a religion built off of good works. If you do enough good works, you're okay. Hinduism, Buddhism. Christianity, and New Age, or really atheism, which is a religion itself. And all of that, all of it tries to be answered, but most of it outside of Christianity is built off, what can I do to crawl out of the mess that I'm in? And it's effort that people have to put in. But then you come to Christianity, it's the story of God coming down to rescue us when we could not rescue ourselves. And the story of redemption begins to be unpacked in Genesis chapter 3. And then all throughout the rest of the Bible, you just see the whole Old Testament is the story of telling that what that Messiah is going to be like. And there's pictures and there's types. And all of that just shows this is the Christ. So that when he comes, he was fully recognizable. And they knew. The Bible is the story of restoration. I love this aspect of it is what was lost in Adam is regained in Christ. What was lost in Adam is restored by Christ. And as you get into the Bible, there's a lot of prophecy that's recorded in the Bible for us, and it's great stuff. And prophecy is not God's awareness of the future. Prophecy is not God's foreknowledge, thinking this is what's going to happen, or it's not God saying, well, I think this is the way human history will go. Prophecy is God's determination of the future, So that when you read the book of Revelation, what he's saying to you is, this is what I'm going to do to restore what was lost because of sin. That's the gospel. And it incorporates all of that. I think sometimes as you in working with people and talking to people, and this is what's called the meta-narrative of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's really in a nutshell It's the meta-narrative of the Bible. It also is helpful to you to be able to say, where is an individual at in their life? As you begin to talk to people and you begin to probe and you begin to find out where are they, well, they they may not believe in creation by God. Then that's where you start with evangelism. Well, they may believe God created it, but they not understand sin. They may be trying their own self-effort to make their way to heaven or they're concerned about self-righteousness. So you start with, well, sin. 
the depths of sin, the depravity of sin, the totalness of it, how it rendered us helpless completely. And then you go into redemption and all that Christ has done for us. Our focus headed toward Easter is on the subject of redemption. We want to just share that story. And we want to share it with you as we lead into it because, you know, someone said this, preach the gospel every Sunday because the people that need the gospel most are the people sitting in church. We need it. There's a pattern that develops in Scripture. It's an interesting pattern. It is always by grace. It is always through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. But it is by grace that you serve through faith. It's a pattern of Scripture. It is always by grace, and it is always through faith. And as we look at this story of redemption, it's a story of grace. It's a story of faith. It is grace in that God has made the provision. It is faith because we respond to God's provision, trusting him. So as we get into redemption, as we head toward Easter, we want to just look at some things and try to just make the gospel front and center in these next couple of weeks. Now, Jesus, the redemption is really the story of Jesus, And I want to take time with you, if I can, and just walk you through some things. I want to call it the six acts of Jesus' redemptive work. And I want to show you this today. If if we were writing a book, we would say there's six chapters to this book. If we were performing a play, we would say there's six acts to this play. And when you look at Jesus and you look at the work of redemption, there are six acts to the play if I can paint the picture that way. There are six parts of it, and they're all very critical to understanding the gospel. And it really can't leave any of it out. And a lot of times what we do is we tend to focus on one aspect or two aspects, and we forget there's six acts to this story. And that's what I want to take time and show you this morning and then get into a couple things with it. The first act is the incarnation. That was when God made his way in the flesh. And we celebrated that just recently at Christmas. God became flesh. God became human just like us. It's called the incarnation. It's act one. Act two is the crucifixion. That's the second act in the play. And as we head toward Easter, we're actually heading toward the celebration, if you would, of his crucifixion. It is a vital aspect in the redemption story. Vital aspect of it. But we're also headed toward part three of that story. It's the resurrection. That's really what we celebrate on Easter. But truthfully, that's what we study and that's what we celebrate every Sunday. We worship on Sunday We celebrate every single Sunday a risen Lord. Easter becomes an opportunity for us because in our country, we still celebrate Christmas. We still celebrate Easter. So the world is kind of, at least the world of America, is kind of 
attuned to the resurrection or Easter. And it gives us as Christians the opportunity to say, let's take advantage of the opportunity. Let's be bold. Because it is something that our country does. You know, my daughter living in Kuwait right now, they don't celebrate Easter in Kuwait. We celebrate a risen Lord. Part four is the ascension. This is recorded in the book of Acts after Jesus was uh, risen after his resurrection. He comes back and kind of surprises the disciples and he meets with them and talks with them. And of course they were like, what? In fact, he appeared in a room with them and they're like, hmm. And he says things like to them, hey, doubting Thomas, he says, here, put your hand, touch this. See, see my side? I'm flesh and blood. And, and in fact, give me something to eat so I can show you. And when he went back to heaven, he went back to heaven with his physical body. And Jesus Christ is still in that physical body, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The ascension is talked about in Scripture. This same Jesus, whom you have seen taken up into heaven, shall so come in like manners. In other words, as he went up, he's coming back down. The ascension. And then you have the return of Jesus Christ. That's what we await. But that's not the end of the story. He's coming back. Maybe today. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> we sing that song sometime, uh, maybe today my Lord may come. It may be noon, it may be morn, but maybe today the Lord may come. But at some point, he's coming back. When? Don't know. People have tried to predict it. There's books that have been written. One wrote 88 reasons why he's coming in 88. Had to revise it in 89 to 89 reasons why he's coming in 1989. 88 and 89, long time ago now. He never came. This recently someone came out and said, well, look at the blood moons. We'll be able to tell by the moons he's coming back. It's really simple to understand. The Bible simply says this, no one knows. No one knows when he comes. And so we just live ready every day. The final part of the story is judgment. These are the six acts of the redemptive story. And they're all important to the story because, as you'll see, all of us are going to stand and we're going to be judged. All of us. Nations are going to be judged. Individuals are going to be judged. And it's important to understand that judgment is a part of the story. And here, when we look at the redemptive work of Christ, what Christ's redemptive work ultimately does for us is in the day of judgment, we're okay. Now, as you get into this and you look at this, wouldn't you think that when Jesus, the Messiah, showed up, people would be thrilled that he was here? You would think that, wouldn't you? You would think after all this time of a couple thousand years of Old Testament, all of the prophets, all of the prophecy, all that was recorded, all that was written, wouldn't you think that they'd be thrilled to see this guy? 
Yeah, he's finally here. No. They killed him. They killed him. They killed him. The greatest murder of all time was they killed the only individual who never sinned. They killed him. Never sinned. Never thought a bad thought. Never had a bad attitude. And never committed a sin. And they murdered him. Thrilled to see him? Not at all. This is the greatest tragedy ever recorded in human history. The murder of the only innocent man that ever lived. That's sad. Periodically in our country when the death penalty is given, they always say, well, perhaps we're going to execute an innocent man. Well, you have to define that because there are no innocent people living today. Maybe not that crime he didn't do. Jesus was the only innocent man. Never sinned. And they killed him. They killed him. Why? Why? Let me show you a couple reasons. Reason number one, they crucified Jesus because his life revealed the perfection that God demands. This is the part of the gospel that people don't like. This is the part of the gospel that becomes offensive. Exodus chapter 34 is the best place I know to go to get this across for you. It says this, the Lord, the Lord, New Living Translation, the God of compassion and mercy. We all like that God, don't we? He says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. We all like that God, don't we? He, he goes on and he says this, I lavish unfailing love to, thousand, to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. We all like that God, don't we? But he also says, but I do not excuse the guilty. That's the God we don't like. That's what people In our day, everybody likes a, a loving God. Everybody likes a gracious God. Everybody likes a merciful God. What you don't hear a lot about today is he is a holy God. And his holiness demands a hatred of sin. What you don't hear a lot about today is his justice. Everybody wants justice, but they kind of want justice the way they want justice. 
But what the Bible says that is so important for us to understand is God will forgive those who come and ask for it. God will show mercy and God will be compassionate on those who seek it from him. But he doesn't excuse the guilty. Ever. And therein is where the gospel is born. Because of a holy God. You see, the life of Jesus exposed their guilt. So they killed him. Here, this is the best way I understand it. This is, the only, this is how, to me, I, I am able to picture what took place in that day. Do you remember Barabbas? Do you remember at the, the time they were going to crucify Christ? They brought out Barabbas and said, let's crucify him. Barabbas was a serial killer. He was the worst of criminals in that time and in that day. And so they come and they say, here's Jesus, here's Barabbas. And what does the crowd say? And it wasn't the Pharisees that crucified him. It was the people that crucified him. Because remember, they said, here's Barabbas. And they said, release him. And they looked at Christ and they said, crucify him. And all of the people shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Why? It's real simple. When you get this picture, you just are able to see it. When they stood Barabbas in front of them, a serial murderer, guilty of the worst crimes that could be committed in that day and in that time, he made them all look good. But when they took Jesus and they stood Jesus before a perfect person who never committed any sin, never had a bad attitude, never thought a bad thought, when he stood before them, he made them all look what? He made them all look guilty and bad. And so they said, crucify the one who makes us look sinful. Let the one go who makes us look good. That's man. You see, Jesus exposed their guilt. And God doesn't excuse guilt. The second reason they crucified him was because his life revealed the salvation they needed to clear their guilt. As he did what he did, all of the different acts, it all pointed in one direction. It all pointed toward Christ. But what happens in all of this is he lives out his life. And this is a critical point for us to capture and get. That his life revealed the salvation that they needed to, to clear their guilt. Now let me show you this. In Romans chapter 5, this is a critical concept to understand. And I, I, I hope you see this. It says, for since our friendship, New Living Translation, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. We all know that the death was critical because the death was the payment for our sin. But it wasn't really what, I, I got to be careful how I say this, it wasn't really what brought about our salvation. It was what was necessary to pay the penalty for our sins. So it was a critical component of our salvation, but it was only half the puzzle. Okay? This passage goes on and says, well, we were still enemies. You see, he, he, he then says this. He goes, well, we're still enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. You see, his perf perfect life, his perfection met the demands of God. 
And it is that righteousness that only he had that he lived out by never sinning, never bad attitude, never bad language, never bad thought, and never bad action. He met God's demands. And in meeting God's demands, he was the only person that ever lived on planet Earth that was perfectly righteous. And it met the demands of a holy God. God could look down from heaven, see his holiness in his justice, look at Jesus Christ and says, he is perfect. He is perfect. And that righteousness is what is put to our account when we come to Christ simply saying this, God, I am the sinner. I am the guilty one whose life isn't perfection. In fact, I'll ask you this, ever have a bad attitude? I like to ask it this way. You, you as parents, did you ever have to teach your kids to sin? You parents, when you were kids, did anybody have to teach you how to sin? What do parents do? Teach their kids not to steal, not to lie, not to cheat. Why? Because you already know how to do that. We're guilty. You have to understand, when Christ, when, when Christ was living as a little kid, his parents didn't have to teach him not to lie. They didn't have to teach him not to steal. He didn't have that nature. He was perfection in every way. And that's salvation. I come as the sinner to the perfect Lamb of God, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And simply say, in order to be right in God's eyes, in order to stand at judgment before God... I need his perfection. And therein, the life of Christ saves us. So this passage, when Paul records it, he says, the death of his son paid the penalty. The life of the son gave us the righteousness we needed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. In fact, Luke would say it this way, there is salvation in no one else because no one else was sinless. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so there's three issues that every person has to wrestle with. You have to wrestle with my guilt before God. All of us do. You have to wrestle with that. My guilt. My favorite song of all time is It Is Well With My Soul. My favorite verse is the third verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not the pieces of it, not the individual acts of my sin. My sin, not in part, but the whole, the whole of my sin nature is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Wow. Your guilt before God, he doesn't excuse it. Second thing you have to wrestle with is my salvation in Jesus. 
Am I in Christ? The New Testament, Paul particularly loves this in his epistles. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Christo. In Christ. In my response of faith. As we come down to Easter, we want to make the gospel as clear and as plain as we can. Because I love how Ryan has introduced it. God, our sin, payment. Everyone lives. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we're just asking you during this Easter season as we head toward it, plan, bring people on Easter. Invite friends, invite neighbors, invite coworkers, invite family, invite enemies, invite anybody. And let's see. And let's pray that as we make Christ preeminent, as we make the gospel known, if God won't bring some people to Christ during this time of year. Wouldn't that be neat? Even if it's just one, wouldn't that be awesome? Just one. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. It takes care of that judgment issue. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. There's only one sin that gets you. Only one. It's called the unpardonable sin. There's only one sin that gets us. It's the sin of unbelief. It's the only sin that'll get you. And so as we go into Easter, we want to make known that Christ came to save. Father, thanks for the opportunity. As we uh, head into this Easter season, and even our culture becomes conscious of Easter, the celebration of Good Friday and Sunday, the resurrection, I pray that you'd use us to be able to invite people to come. And I pray, Lord, as we do, that we would just do so with a faith, believing that you will work in the lives of people to bring people to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that during this season, we might see some people come to Christ here at Mount Calvary Church. So, Lord, as we make known the gospel, we pray that you would do your work. And we're going to trust you to do what only you can do in the hearts and lives of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.